You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 456, and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. Kevin Murphy is a software developer in the Boston area. He's been writing Ruby professionally since 2014. He currently works on BookBub, helping people to find their next ebook. He enjoys sharing what he's learned with the community by speaking at conferences and blogging. Welcome to the Ruby on Rails podcast, Kevin. Thanks. I'm honored to be here. I am super stoked to have you here. And, you know, we're conference buddies now, so we're going to start with an easy question. How are you doing, Kevin? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I am doing quite well. Listeners who have listened to episode 454 and 455, I clearly was sick. So my voice was very different. And I am very happy to have my podcast boys back. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better, or at least sounding better. Thank you. Paul, my editor, told me that I sounded like a rock jock, like from WDVE. So (laughs) I'm going to take it as a compliment and just roll with it. But Kevin, of course, I want to ask you, what is your developer origin story? So I was fortunate to have a computer in my house growing up, and I had pretty free reign to tinker with it. And from an early age, I was interested in knowing how they worked and what sort of things you could even do with them. It was kind of mystical to me. But I was also fortunate that in high school, I went to a school that had programming classes. So I learned some QBasic, Visual Basic, Pascal, C++, and Java, all part of my high school program. And that helped me to understand from that early age that that was a thing you could do with your life. Like I didn't even know that that was a profession. But thankfully, through that experience, I was able to get that understanding. And so I went to college for computer engineering. And I went to an engineering school, one that had a co-op program, which if you don't know what a co-op is, they're like internships, but it's part of the curriculum. Like it's part of your degree program that you're expected to go off and have these industry experiences to bolster your classroom learning, which is great. I really like that. And as a part of that, I learned that I didn't want to do computer engineering because I didn't want to do chip design and things like VLSI. Like I wanted to work on the software part of it, which isn't impossible with computer engineering, but I just didn't want to spend the time getting a degree in something I didn't really want to use. So I switched majors and graduated from an engineering school without an engineering degree. And when I graduated, I had the opportunity to go to graduate school. So I got an MBA right out of school because I wanted to round out my technical experience with some like understanding of what business means. So because I had the opportunity to do that, I did that right away. But ever since graduating, I've always been a developer, mostly with Java. And I came to Ruby kind of on a dare from my manager. We were building this small application to support some small process internal to the company. And my manager just turned to me and said, I bet you could write that in Rails and have it ship more quickly than our usual Java tool set. And I was like, cool, what's Rails? And my manager was like, it doesn't matter. It'll be fine. And he was right. Like He gave me the space and support to be able to pick all that up and meet the needs of our users. And I've been writing Ruby professionally ever since. So if you happen to be listening to this, Ari, thank you so much for introducing me to Ruby and for believing in me. Oh, that's so great. I love the fact that we've been writing Ruby professionally both since 2014, and we both have MBAs. You might be my twin, Kevin. I am curious, looking back on it, has that MBA given you any advantage in your career whatsoever? So I was able to give a talk at RailsConf in 2021 exactly about my MBA experience and what benefit that provided to me still as an individual contributor. But it's given me a lot of insight in terms of what to focus on and what questions to ask a lot of it. And like just understanding what is the value we're driving here and what are some ways that we can better inform the choices we're making given that lens? I like that a lot. I mean, I participate in a lot of all company meetings. You probably do as well. And one of the things that we do is we go over the finances 
And it's important to me that I'm able to comprehend what they're saying because it's important to me that I work for a company that's on top of their finances. And the MBA did help me a lot. I will say, however, that my coding boot camp was a fraction of the cost of my MBA. Yep. And I always kind of reflect back on the fact that I think my coding boot camp has gotten me far further than my MBA would have. But maybe I didn't really give my MBA a fair shake before you know I went full time coding. Yeah, it's really tough to know. Did I get a better return on investment on that than I really anticipated? And maybe I just don't want to think about that because of the student loans. But yes. it's, it's hard to translate <laughs> that into dollars. It really is. And I was a couple of years out from graduating from school when I went and got my MBA. And I will say after having some professional experience and then needing to come back to the idea of homework, which is also the case for boot camps. Oh, Kevin, I was just so much better at it just because you had that professional experience. You know what to prioritize. You know how to study more effectively. And in some ways, I wish I could have like done college far later in life as opposed to someone just coming out of high school. There's still time. You can always go back for something else. I sure could. <laughs> well, speaking of education, I want to hear all about BookBub. BookBub is a company that helps connect readers with their next book. We help provide recommendations and we surface deals on ebooks. The primary channel through that is via email. We don't actually sell ebooks, but we highlight deals to other retailers and let you know where you can find a good deal based on your interests. And our company also has an audiobook product called Chirp, where you can purchase audiobooks and listen to them from our store. Okay. And how does that connection work? Like where the recommendations come from? Maybe dig into the tech stack a bit. The recommendations actually come a lot from our human editing team. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> People. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We have human beings that read books and pitches and then provide recommendations from that. So unfortunately, I don't have a, an exciting tech stack story for you there, but that's also intentional. But to actually get to the tech, we use a lot of Ruby. We use a lot of Rails. Our main application is a Rails app. And then we have some smaller internal tools that some use Rails. Some use other Ruby web frameworks. And we also use some closure in some systems. Ooh, okay. Where did the idea of bringing closure in come from? So it came from a time well before me. It's been part of our tech stack for a long time. And we use it a lot for some of our highly performant concurrent actions that need to take place. And at the time that decision was made, closure was and continues to be a good choice for those types of tasks. Okay. And what is BookBub's stance on front-end engineering? Pretty varied. So we have some stuff that uses React. We have some stuff that doesn't use React. We also have mobile apps. We have a mobile app team. I don't get the opportunity to do a lot of work there, so I can't speak very intelligently on the tools there, just to be very clear. But it's sort of a mix. I mean, so the company's been around for, I think, 11 years. And, you know, there's definitely a mix of 11 years worth of development in there. Okay. Yeah. I like a code base with some history, as long as you can figure out that history. But I also like the fact that it sounds like BookBub makes technical decisions based on the current situation. While that might be a little bit harder to maintain the entire code base, it sounds like you have enough developers there that can focus on the individual pieces. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I found the team to be very pragmatic in the choices that we make, and that's been very enjoyable to be a part of. Okay, great. I'm going to take a moment to tell you all about Honey Badger's cron job and heartbeat monitoring. How important are cron jobs to your business? For me, they are absolutely mission critical. Honey Badger monitors your cron jobs and services to make sure that they don't silently disappear. When Honey Badger is quiet, 
life is good. Have you ever considered implementing heartbeat monitoring? Honey Badger also makes that incredibly simple as well. Honey Badger gives you a URL, then you call the URL. If Honey Badger stops hearing from you within the configured time period, they're gonna go ahead and alert you. Honey Badger just keeps adding more and more tooling that all developers need. To dive into all of this, head on over to honeybadger.io. So you brought up the long-term benefits of community involvement in the pre-show, and this is the topic that I want to dig into today with you, Kevin. So first off, congratulations on your first commit being merged into Ruby. That is an absolutely huge deal. So listeners are caught up. Why should we care about Ruby's coverage module? So coverage is part of the standard library in Ruby, but you probably don't use it directly, and that's fine, I think, but you are pretty likely to care about what it does. So the coverage in general is a way of measuring how much in different ways a certain piece of code or software is executed. So you'll see this used a lot for measuring code coverage, which you'll probably see a lot in terms of seeing how much of your tests are executing your application code. So SimpleCov is a gem that will tell you your code coverage, and that uses the coverage module to tell you what that number is. It typically does that by counting the number of times that you execute certain lines. So then you take the total number of lines that you executed when you're running your tests, you take the total number of lines in your application, you divide them, you get a percentage, and you say, hey, this is my application's code coverage. But there's a couple different ways of measuring coverage. It doesn't have to just be the number of lines or how many times you hit certain lines. For example, if you're familiar with a ternary statement, if you're not, that's an if test that happens on a single line of code with some fun-looking syntax with question marks and colons. And that ternary statement's on a single line, but there's multiple code paths within that line. And so if we're testing the code coverage of our application that has a ternary statement, we might get back that, yes, this line's covered, and this line's been executed in our test suite, but there might only be one side of that if test that's actually tested in our test suite. Now, the coverage module has different modes of coverage that you can execute, and one of them is called branches coverage. And that reports on which of your branches and conditionals are executed. So that will actually tell you, that different mode of coverage will tell you, hey, you hit this side of your ternary statement, but not that other side. But it also has that lines coverage and has a few other modes as well. But that's the general idea of what that coverage module does. It provides you a facility to inspect your code while other code is running, and then report back to you after and say, hey, here is what was hit or what wasn't hit when this was running. That's such a good point. I've worked at places before that have been very adamant that we maintain at least 80% code coverage. But I think you can agree, Kevin, that you can have very flimsy code coverage with a high percentage. When I learned how to code and I knew what a ternary statement was, I was kind of ternary statement like crazy and was using them everywhere. But you're right. You have to test both code paths. And also you can write really flimsy tests that essentially do nothing and still register a high code coverage. So you have to be smart about what that code coverage actually means to you. Exactly. The number can be helpful in certain situations, Mm -hmm. like particularly I find it for like good for motivation for when you have projects that you are explicitly trying to bolster that number for. Some teams find it useful as like a guard to make sure that things aren't regressing. But that number in isolation doesn't really tell me a whole lot. You could look at two applications that have the same level of test coverage by this metric, and the health and quality of those applications could be very different. Have you ever worked on a team where if the code coverage slips, then you are not allowed to merge your pull request? So I've definitely seen those. I have not worked on any teams that have those strictly enforced. 
Yeah, I haven't either. So listeners, if you work on one of those teams, like be sure to tweet at us. I'm curious what it is like. So Kevin, I know you believe in like educating the coverage module. So can you tell me about the, I'm putting this in quotes, the Ruby's got you covered world tour that you did? Sure. So like all good things, it was pretty much a joke from the start, (laughs) but it has sort of like a couple of years long history. Yeah. Because I learned about the coverage module at all by using it as a distraction. So I was writing a different talk for RubyConf in 2019 that was about test coverage. And as part of like building those slides, I was like, oh, I'll take some time to figure out how SimpleCov actually works. And then I figured out, hey, there's actually a module in Ruby that does all, a lot of this for us. And then SimpleCov does a lot of work to translate that and give us some nice views into how that all works. So I spent some time learning about all this stuff. And then I realized I can't use any of this for this actual talk. It's not relevant at all. It's cool and interesting, but I'm just kind of going to put it to the side. But it was a good distraction against actually writing slides that were actually helpful. So it, it helped in that <laughs> regard. But I saved all that stuff up and ended up giving a talk the next year at RubyConf in 2020 just on the coverage module because I was like, oh, this seemed pretty neat. I talked to some people and a lot of people weren't super familiar with this part of Ruby. So I was like, oh, OK, maybe there's something here. And RubyConf in 2020 was virtual because it was 2020. And quite frankly, it's the favorite talk that I've put together so far. It's the most technical talk that I've given. The theme of it incorporates my favorite band. And it was just a lovely distraction from the rest of the world. So I had a good time with it. And, you know, I gave it in 2020, set it down, let it go. Then back in 2021, I was looking for something to publish as a blog post. And I realized I should probably take all this content and put it in a blog post as well in case people prefer to read it. And when I was doing that, I sort of missed doing the talk because it was fun. And one of the benefits of the last couple of years is just the growth in virtual events. So a lot of local meetup groups were still doing virtual meetup groups. And so I reached out to a bunch and asked if they wanted me to come talk at one of their sessions. So over the course of about six weeks, I talked to groups in Boston and Columbus and Philadelphia, Nashville, London, New York City and Vancouver. The theme of the talk is about putting on a concert tour. So as a joke, I was like, all right, well, I'm going on a world tour and I guess I don't have t-shirts or anything, and I never left my house. But it was just sort of like a fun way to put all of this together. And that was great, too, because I met a lot of great people, and I tried to make the best of a situation because I wouldn't have otherwise logistically been able to go to all those local meetups. But because everything was virtual, I was able to do that. I love that so much. So did the talk end up morphing the more you gave it, or were you pretty consistent with it each time? My delivery tends to change. Like I don't script things out particularly, but the content itself didn't change around very much. That was pretty static. Okay. Well, I want to get into the commit that you submitted to Ruby. So obviously you made the decision to want to submit a commit to Ruby. Was this your first library open source contribution ever? No, definitely not. I mean, I've maintained a few very small and not well-known or well-used open source libraries. I've contributed to some better known libraries in the past, but never to anything of the scale of Ruby directly. Okay. So Gemma Israff has detailed how she and Eric Patterson got object shapes into Ruby 3.2, which sounded like it was a complicated and a little bit of a political process. But I'd love to hear your process in submitting a commit. Yeah, mine was much more straightforward. <laughs> and first of all, I just want to like even be mentioned around or in the same sentence as Gemma and Aaron. It's a big honor. Like those are people I have a ton of respect and admiration for. The change we're talking about is nothing like the work that they and lots of other people do to make Ruby better. My thing was a small three-line change and, you know, they're pushing entire language features. But like, I'm intentionally distancing myself from that, not only in like a separate self-deprecating, like, oh, I just made a three-line change way, but also particularly to point out 
that for lots of projects, there's lots of space for contributions of all types and sizes. I don't have to work on the Ruby source code day in and day out, but I can spot the ways that I can make an improvement potentially and help out in that way. And I'm not on the path to becoming a member of the core team, and that's fine, but I can still help in the ways that I have identified. Okay, there might be a need here. This episode is brought to you by Miro. Here's the thing, you've got the idea, but there's the small matter of actually bringing your code to life in the most seamless way, letting the world see it. Without the hassle of coordinating with decision makers and other teams without creating double the work, you know, all the things that get in the way. That's where Miro's collaborative whiteboard platform makes your life as a developer easier. Whether it's agile planning, scrum events, or technical diagramming, Miro is built for engineering workflows like yours. Miro also has integrations with tools you probably already use, like Jira, Azure, and Rally. Import tasks for them as native cards to see the big picture. In Miro, you can create user story maps, prioritize your backlog, or organize tasks into sprints using customizable Kanban boards, or browse through a whopping 300 plus expert build templates to get you started for any project. Identifying dependencies is also incredibly easy and intuitive when you can organize all your project tasks and resources on one Miro board. Head on over to Miro.com slash Ruby, that's M-I-R-O.com slash Ruby, to check out the Ruby on Rails podcast community board in action. Get to know us, the co-hosts, play some games, and leave feedback on this podcast episode with sticky notes, comments, reactions, and more. That's Miro.com slash Ruby. But anyway, to your question on the process. Mine started because I was looking at the changes in Ruby 3.2 between Christmas and New Year's because I was off of work and promised myself that I wasn't going to write any code. So instead, I read a lot of code. And as part of doing that, I saw that there were some changes to the coverage module. And so we've been talking about coverage. We've been talking about how for a couple of years, it's been sort of like a passing fancy of mine that I have some level of interest in. So I looked into some of those changes and I noticed that there was a method that was introduced by Samuel Williams in the coverage module called supported question mark. And what this method would do is it would return, given a parameter of input, it would tell you if the coverage module supported either this mode or this option at the time of the writing of this version of the coverage module. And I noticed that one of those modes that we talked about earlier on was missing from that list. And I didn't know if that was on purpose or not. So I sent Samuel a message on Mastodon and just asked, hey, should this be here? Or like, was I missing something? Is this the right way to go about this? And then from there, Samuel and another user, Esparta, encouraged me to add an issue to the Ruby issue tracker. So I did that. That is the place where we're supposed to start. And when I did that, Samuel triaged the issue and looked at it and said, like, hey, do you have a pull request for this? And I did, because again, it was a very small change. And I made that code change both because when I was investigating this, I was just sort of like looking around and seeing like, oh, what would I do here? And then Samuel asked for it so I could provide it pretty quickly. It was just adding basically a conditional to an if test. But in general, process-wise, I definitely recommend waiting to get feedback on your issue in the issue tracker before moving forward. Okay, that is so interesting to me. So you said it was a three-line change, but I'm curious. So you ended up changing the code itself, but did you not have to alter any tests as well? Oh, the three lines includes the test. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) One of the lines was an assertion in an existing test. Okay, gotcha. Okay, that is amazing. So looking back on it, do you think reaching out via Mastodon was the right thing to do? Is there a situation where that is the preferred thing to do as opposed to opening an issue on the issue tracker? Like, I'm just curious on your take there, Kevin. Yeah, I mean, so I guess I leaned toward that direction because I knew Samuel was on Mastodon. Okay. 
Now, I also don't want to speak for them to say the best way that they like to field issues. So they happen to reference the changes in coverage. So I was like responding to that as well. But in general, start the issue tracker. Definitely don't read, <laughs> reach out to maintainers and like find their phone number and then text them out of context. And be like, you don't know who I am, but like, what about this thing? So I'm asking that question from a selfish standpoint, because this is the part of the episode where Kevin gets to sit back and I get to shower him in compliments. But I wanted to touch upon just overall your general openness and generosity. You are so kind, Kevin, because you are constantly offering the Ruby community a hand. You either are offering to review talk proposals, encouragement. I guess, where does all of that come from? I guess mostly it feels like a nice thing to do. Going back to the contribution process, something I want to mention is that like one of the things I did for that process was reading the contributing to Ruby section of the docs. And those are updated for all sorts of reasons. But by the way, the latest changes to those docs were made by Gemma at the time that I read them. Fun to mention a co-host and also a person that you mentioned in those questions. But those docs exist, at least partially, because it's a nice and helpful way to help people get involved and feel like a part of it. Also, there's a benefit of just like if we spell out the rules, then people can follow them and know what to do. But for things like talk proposals and encouragement, I hope it's beneficial to people. I'm not someone that has contributed to Ruby much once, but I have been accepted to speak a couple of times now. And I've also had the experience of not being accepted and having proposals, you know, have them say not right now. So I have some perspective on what I found can work and what can't work. Also, I'm not on program committees as of now, so I'm free to help people with their proposals with no concern of like breaking anonymity of who is reviewing this and who this proposal is for. So, you know, if there's something I can do that will help people achieve a goal they have of speaking, that also helps everyone in the community, right? Because then we hear their talk and maybe we wouldn't have heard their talk otherwise. I do not say that in a way of like, it's only because of me. But if I have some way of helping in that, then that's hopefully better for everyone because we all get the benefit of hearing these new voices or voices we're familiar with that have interesting and fun perspectives that we can learn from. I love that so much. So what should we expect to see from you this year, Kevin? Are you going to be speaking more? You feel like you would be a perfect shoe-in for a programming committee at some point. What are you looking forward to this year? So my talk about coverage, even though it's a few years old, I still love it. It's talk about live music, and I've never given it in front of a live audience. So I'm hoping to add another date to the world tour and do that in 2023. We'll see what happens there. Generally... Think I'm, I don't want to say I'm ramping down, but I'm kind of going to take it easy on speaking this year just because I feel like I just need to do that. But I blog like once a month and, you know, so people can hear from me there. And hopefully that gives me more time to help other people if they're interested in speaking, reading proposals and helping them out. Okay. I love that. And what's the best way for listeners to reach out to you? Should you be making that generous offer to them, Kevin? I guess the best place to ask things like that is. Probably if you're on Mastodon, I'm on the ruby.social instance. My handles there is Kevin underscore J underscore M. But you can also find my website at kevinjmurphy.com. You can sign up for my newsletter. You can add it to your RSS reader, make it your homepage, whatever you want to do. I have an about page on there that tells you everywhere you can find me. So if you're not on Mastodon, but you are somewhere else, you can reach out to me there. I technically don't have a homepage on Firefox. So maybe I will just make your blog my homepage. That seems like a very fitting thing to do. Perfect. <laughs> So I don't want to jump the gun before we wrap up. But overall, Kevin, you know, I like to ask all of the guests this. What are your thoughts on the future of Ruby and the Ruby on Rails communities? I'm encouraged by the future of the Ruby community. I tend to be a risk adverse person. 
I like stable technology and stability in most of my life. So when people talk about the place that Ruby's in now, like that is incredibly comfortable to me. But at the same time, like we want stable tools, but we don't want stale. And I think partially to combat staleness, what we need to do is, is open up who we work with and who we hear from. So sort of going back to the helping people with talk proposals, that's part of why I help with that, right? Because people have heard from me and people have heard from people like me, but you know, any listeners out there, like we want to hear from you and what you're working on and we want to know what you have to share with us. And so I like that we have opportunities to expand our group and expand our perspective because of that. And so like Brittany, while I'm here, I want to take the opportunity to thank you for how you do that with this podcast. It is so exciting to hear your voice and how it changes when someone admits that this is their first podcast when you have them on as a guest. (laughs) Thank you. That is a personal challenge for me to have as many new podcast guests, especially in 2023. Absolutely love it. And that's why I love having podcasts out there like Ruby for All who's doing the same thing. Yeah, it's great. It's great to have this space and other spaces and podcasts where we can hear from all these people. And I get to feel involved and reinvigorated by the Ruby and Ruby on Rails community just by listening. Oh, I love that. Well, Kevin, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I'm so hoping, you know, I'm going to get in line right now for a ticket to the live version of the Ruby's Got You Covered World Tour. I'm hoping I get a ticket to it this year. Me too. <laughs> the Ruby's Got You Covered World Tour is coming. 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 That was the best show ever. It rocks. Rocks. Fresh off his 2021 tour. New York City, Austin, Nashville, Columbus, Philly, London, Vancouver. Kevin Murphy takes coverage in Ruby on the road again. It's informative. I learned a lot of stuff. Learn to leverage Ruby's different coverage techniques in an actual concert tour setting. The Ruby's got you covered world tour. For more info and upcoming tour dates at a conference near you, go to KevinJMurphy.com. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.